This is the Pain Information Network. Dr. Gabor Rax. I held this interview back, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to introduce you to one of the greats, uh, an individual in medicine that you get a chance to meet and practice beside maybe, or you get the opportunity to learn from and underscore learn uh, what great leaders do, what great men in medicine do. And I wanted to introduce you to him. He's a distinguished professor. He's an author. He's a gentleman, and I'm lucky to call him my friend. His story is fascinating and inspirational. Among his many achievements, entrepreneurship is one of them, as one of the founders of a medical product and supply company. This company is used worldwide. It's called EpiMed, E-P-I-M-E-D. Doctors that do interventional pain know them, and this just rolls off their tongue, the best stuff there is. They design and they manufacture key components. Some were pioneered by Dr. Rax, and this is for advanced pain care. His residency is between Texas and New Mexico, or visiting the many countries he is asked to speak in. International speaker, his academic uh, credentials are, are rarely achieved and or approached by a rare few, both last century and this century. So we are uh, amongst the giants. His family is, is re- really close. They're a great family, and I'm lucky to know him. He's had a rich life. Um, I have to consider this interview just an absolute privilege. I delayed the release of this audio story because of a sad event. We had just lost Dr. Prithvi Raj, another giant, in ours or any field of medicine, and a close friend of Dr. Rack's. We'll hear the types of work they did together and how they, they contributed immensely to the field of pain medicine and just medicine in general, and some of the unique procedures that they really um, took from a thought and turned it into a procedure performed throughout the world. I had the honor of knowing his wife, Dr. Raj's wife, Susan, and I met uh, their children, a beautiful family. I think Gabor would agree this episode is dedicated to Dr. Raj and family. Dr. Raj's family can rest knowing the good a single man can do for family, society, and medicine making the world just a plain, softer place. Doctors Raj and Rax have inspired the lives of millions now and to come. All right, so let's soak this one in. It's a special episode. I have with me today Dr. Gabor Rax. I can't say enough about Dr. Rax. He's a true pioneer in our field and one of the greatest... uh, of the best of the best. Uh, Dr. Rack, I'd really like a comment or two about the passing of another true giant. And I, I, I'm going to ask you to make, make those comments, but first tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, the giant that passed was a friend. And it's easy to claim a friend which is not so unless the other party also acknowledges you as a friend. And 
he wrote the nicest letter to a handful of people a week before he, he knew he was going to go to heaven. And I directly quote from memory, he said, Gabor, what can I say? You were my friend, or are your friend, or some, are my friend. Anyway, I met Prithviraj as a new chairman. Prior to being a chairman in Texas Tech, I was in Syracuse then, trained in anesthesiology, uh, intensivist, neuroanesthesia, dabbled in pain with my mentor, Willie Evers. And it, it became very obvious to me that you, you need friends, you need mentors. Not only that, but you need to become friend of others and be mentors to others and help them grow, be positively, constructively, rude if necessary, but, <laughs> but appropriately rude. Anyway, I've been blessed, um, have had people help me for no good reason, which is the best kind of help. I it mean, is. there is nothing better. Uh, I arrived in England in 56, December, and the young family took me in their home, sight unseen, just hearing that I was a second-year medical student. And I, my, only, my only goal was to be a doctor. But how do you do that when you cannot speak a word of English? Oh, wow. So I had literally three months, 50, 60 words a day, uh, prior to the young family, uh, the man of the house, um, Dr. Ian McQuinney, his cousin was the dean of the medical school, and he attached to my letter of application uh, a brief note that he knows me because I live in their family, and, and lo and behold, I got an interview. Wow. And when I left, somebody came out from the interviewing process and said, you are in. Oh, wow. now, and September, I restarted second year, had to test out from some simple subjects like physics and biochemistry and things, but somehow it never scared me, even though all the exams were essay exams, and by luck, I never ever had to take an English test. Oh, and wow. some say that it shows, but yeah, what the hell, you know. Yeah. Now you have spell checks on computers, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, you know, just overcoming the language barrier, that's tough enough. But this complicated scientific language, that must have just been a bear. I had friends, and they made it easy, and, and I, had, I had an incredible incentive. The incentive was, they said, you get a grant, and you get the grant so long as you pass your test. And I had zero backing. It is amazing what you can do when you have no way out. Because I wanted to be a doctor, and I didn't want to be anything else. And uh, somehow I made it. And uh, I made it my... You know, I realized that 
I had to, with a funny name like Gabor Ratz, I had to work twice as hard as anybody else, you know. I didn't take it as an insult. I took it as an opportunity. And so when you feel like dropping and put it aside and step forward and say, what else may I do, please, sir? And then you do it, you know. Yeah. So that, that's been the principle along the way, and I've been just very lucky. Well, that's yeah. more than just luck. It's accomplishment. You took uh, a very challenging environment. You rose, and you had great resilience. But tell tell us what happened after med school. Well, I had to. I, I thought I would become a reconstructive pediatric head and neck surgeon, and I everything I wanted, I could do it. It just happened, you know. And, but I screwed up because I got the choice plum job for internship in Liverpool, England. And I, I just looked at the various jobs and I applied just to one job. I was so stupid, I didn't realize there were 50 applicants for that one job. But what was worse, I got it. Because, you know, when you get it, you think you get everything. And life isn't like that. You have to think ahead. And it was a hell of a lesson. Because I'm having fun being an intern. And uh, it really was fun. It was fate. Uh, it was fate is what it was. Uh, so it took, you, it took you places. Where to take you? Well, it, I remained in Liverpool for the year. But then when my buddies, they didn't get the plump jobs, uh, they were coming in and scurrying around looking for anatomy demonstrator jobs. And suddenly I realized they were all coming, oh, I got this job, I got that job. That, gosh, I should have done it myself, but I never even thought about it. So I, um, I thought, well, I better think about it. Do I really want to be a surgeon? And let's say I ended up a surgeon and with a name like the Boar Rats, I end up in some uh, small Yorkshire town somewhere. Now, do I want to end up in a small Yorkshire town? And the answer to every one of them was no, no, no. So then I thought, well, what is it else that I like? I didn't want to miss a subject, went through the curriculum. And, and do I want to be a pediatrician? Hell no ophthalmologist, uh, you know, and the only difference I could see that one had a patch on the left eye and the other on the right eye, and <laughs> and it was always dark, and I, I, no, I thought, no, psychiatry, hell no. Internal medicine, I was just some cardiology, and uh, it was, it, it, hardly anybody ever takes the pill the doctor gives, you know, it was like right. voodoo medicine, and so I... I, I now appreciate a good doctor, but uh, as a as a young guy, uh, it was not. And then suddenly, I, to my utter surprise, there were three subjects that emerged. One was uh, orthopedic surgery, the other one was neurosurgery, and the third one was anesthesia, to my surprise. And my best man at the wedding uh, in fifth year... Uh, was the son of the professor, Cecil Gray's son, Dave Gray. And I asked him, uh, what will you do? And he says, anesthesia, of course. 
And that sort of made me stop and pay attention. And because I already thought there was a potential. Because, and then the next step was if I choose one of the three, what, which one is in the best interest of my family? And um, now we had uh, Gabor, who was just born uh, when I was an intern. And. Uh, That's your son and your namesake. Yeah. Yes. It, it, and it, uh, it was sort of. Uh, obvious that the most uh, likely chance road to succeed is anesthesia, and um, it turned out to be—I turned out to be deadly accurate. I looked 15 years ahead. I didn't dare to go 20. I sort of projected where I would, what sort of thing could happen. And then they stopped the military draft in England and was, would have been drafted. Oh, wow. I, I felt like I was given a couple of years' gift. And um, so I thought I'll go to America for a year because I didn't apply for the demonstrators. I talked to the chairman of anesthesia, Cecil Gray. He says, yeah, he'll be happy to have, happy to have me back. So I felt I had a job to go back to, and I thought, go and see America. But the Brits uh, look at America like you would look at a rich cousin, you know, that he's okay, but there's something not quite right. <laughs> and uh, I assumed that mentality prior to arrival in Syracuse. I, had, I wrote two letters. I got two job offers, one at Dartmouth, one at Syracuse. And Dartmouth was going to pay me $2,600 a year and... Syracuse was much more generous, paid me $2,800 a year. Oh, wow. And, but plus, plus a ticket, round, random uh, round ticket. And uh, I didn't have any money whatsoever. That's an easy choice. But I, I left my wife and beautiful wife and my son behind saying, in a couple of weeks, I'll be sending a ticket. I didn't know how, but I knew I was going to do it. You know something? I did it. Uh, I hope I paid it back, but... Uh, you know, many times over, no doubt. No doubt. So it's, when you set your mind, it's amazing what you can do. So I ended up in Syracuse, uh, hated anesthesia, sitting there taking blood pressures every five minutes. But then physiology came out, and pharmacology came out, and the team spirit came out. And uh, it, it happened about uh, six months and then I, I suddenly realized I was very good, not by my self-recognition, but by how I was accepted, how it fit in the team and outcome. And so, so when you set your mind to be good at anything, it, it, it is more likely to work than when you just do a job. And uh, for me, it never just was a job. It was my choice, vocation, and uh, started looking at small issues and a little bit bigger issues. And, um, and amazingly, it worked. And I developed a way to, of learning that I would read up on something and then 
uh, next day I would make a fool of all of the others, <laughs> quizzing, the, quizzing them on a topic. That way I learned more. Uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of the Socratic uh, method in reverse, where <laughs> the resident is uh, pimping the uh, other residents. It's usually the doctor in charge pimping, and that's called the Socratic method. That's how we used to learn. That's pretty much gone. Well, yeah, I guess you have to be correct and right, or some people may take insult, and uh, but I didn't care. <laughs> no, it helps with humility, that's for sure. Yeah. It keeps us grounded. So you went from Syracuse, where'd you hit then? I stuck around, you know. I didn't have the right papers, and I, um, but I, wa- I was wanted, so they did anything to keep me and were very nice to me. And I made enough noise, got involved in critical care, neuroanesthesia, working with neurosurgeons very closely. I learned a great deal from the neurosurgical mindset, and so I never, never intentionally bought into the operant conditioning and behavioral nonsense. Yeah. Uh, because I realized that you've got to look for origin and explanation of pain. Don't just do the same procedure and declare everybody a drug addict and, you know, just do one thing and pretend that that's the solution to back pain, neck pain, leg pain, nose pain, ear pain, whatever, you know, to just... Uh, so you were dabbling in pain back then, and back then there was very few things that we did. In fact, most uh, doctors at any level didn't want anything to do with people that were in pain. I guess it was an epidural or nothing. No, it, it, interesting, the first first procedure had a biggest impact on me is, is to understand how desperate patients are. Our, our professor and chairman of neurosurgery, did in it was something like 69 or so six maybe 68 uh, implant of a spinal cord stimulator in a back pain really but where you placed a corkscrew like device into the cord and prior to that there's the patient on a stretcher and he comes up to him and says the best I can offer you is a 3% chance of improvement. Oh, jeez. And the patient says, well, that's better than what I have now, which is nothing. Yeah. So we've come a long way from that. And it took about eight hours because you had to open up the dura and, open, and expose the spinal cord, get hemostasis, then try to stitch it water, watertight so it wouldn't be spinal fluid leak and then put some S's in the wires and uh, so it was a but what was remarkable that what people are willing to accept for pain relief that's how desperate they are that's a testament to desperation and that's what we see yes it's it's absolutely true you know and 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 I saw a lot of uh, thalamotomies for uh, tremors and Parkinson's, but also for pain. So, it had an impact. It had an impact on that. Uh, there is neuromodulation as as um, part of the uh, therapeutic armamentarium, and, and when any 
activity came along, I was really very close to it. And um, I remember using the Avery electrodes. Oh, that's, uh, and that's way back. It, it was, but yeah. I also learned that uh, 20% success rate was really not enough. And we had about 20% success rate because the two electrodes, it's a bipolar and one electrode always moved, and it just was not uh, a system. And then when I heard about one electrode having four contacts on the same, I said, holy tomale, that's, that's paradise. So I, we quickly jumped into it, and, uh, and uh, it, had, it really had a major impact. And, because it was uh, something you had to figure out because the companies didn't know what the hell they were doing. Yeah. What year was it? Oh, it was in the 70s. Yeah. uh, Yeah. About 79, 80. What company was that? That was pre-Metron. Two of them came out at the same time. The first one actually... Uh, that I saw was a, a neuromat. There's a Bill Borkin. He mm-hmm. uh, sort of made the system, but his electrodes uh, uni- uniformly broke and went around. Their electrodes don't never break, never migrate. Every goddamn one of them broke, <laughs> you know. And, and he refused to d- admit, but they didn't migrate. He was absolutely correct. They just broke because he had a weak plastic outer layer and. And uh, Medtronic had a better coating. Theirs did not break outright. They just snapped at the entry point to the skin. And they, they were confused with the men- mentality that a softer electrode is better. So within two weeks, you would have nerve root stimu- intercostal nerve root stimulation. I mean, every, every damn time. So Yeah, migration. Uh, Yes. Yeah. It, it yeah. migrated to the side, and so I put them in further in so to get a bit of scar formation. Then two or three weeks later, I pulled it down, so I had solved the migration problem to some extent. No one was putting those in back then. What got you started with stimulation? Because it was a real rarity back then. Well, I was the number one account in the whole country, and it happened because yeah. uh, had one of the guys... Uh, a neurosurgeon who was a medical student at the time when I was at Syracuse. And he became a neurosurgeon, and he went in the uh, army, and then following that he went to work in with Nashold. And Nashold was a, a sort of a serious entity, and uh, he learned from Nashold, and he came with radio frequency and stimulation. Oh and an open mindset that you have not seen in any other specialty other than neurosurgeons. And he was a friend. And he sort of not only accepted, but in some ways even looked up. And, you know, when you have a a relationship, I always looked up to him for his contribution. So when you have a relationship that you develop with somebody, that becomes a productive relationship. So out of that came the first, almost one of the first publications on uh, stimulation. was 20-some cases we published in Spine, and we confessed to 
20-some percent migration and fractures. And um, Neuromed uh, published a list. Rax says uh, <laughs> that, you know, this many migrates, this many, and the Neuromed, uh, their idol in, De- in Colorado was saying that zero migration, zero fractures, and they lied like hell. And, yeah. and uh, it's it's a fact. So it's uh, I'm very careful not to make accusations that are not accurate. And, and so well, I called that started the, your academic career. Then that paper is that one of your first papers? No, I had I had a number of papers before um, in, from Syracuse in neuroanesthesia. I wrote a book on. I managed, I was I was asked to be a respiratory consultant. And when the chairman asked me to be a respiratory consultant, uh, we solved problems, uh, figured out uh, fat embolism syndrome. And if you look, oh, wow. in, if you look in, and we published with chairman of orthopedics, Dave Murray, uh, an article on, on pe- people dropping PO2s down in the 20s and rapidly bring it back. Uh, I just transferred the principles that uh, Arnold Sladen at, at Harvard developed, and he was weighing people to pick up on on uh, fluid accumulation in the lung in ARDS. Oh, wow. And I, in a fat embolism syndrome, when your patient is unconscious and has low PO2, I just used the angstroms and the acetylchronic acid diuretic peat out and the PO2s would shoot up and used experts who retired before there was positive end and the peep and uh, so it was paralyzing sedating the hyperventilating patients and controlled CO2s with feeding in CO2 in the system so it was a respiratory mechanics and and uh, uh, gas exchange was sort of uh, my bag. And uh, so it, it, wow. the net effect of that was that surgeons asked me to lecture to the Harvey Cushing Society in Los Angeles. And they were nationally and internationally known, and they would get visitors. So it gave me exposure because I was running the head injury unit from a respiratory point of view. So you make friends, and from that you learn to make other friends. And you make friends by working hard. And, you know, for I did that for several years, but I never, ever sent a bill. I didn't know you could bill for doing what I was, <laughs> I viewed that was needed. Yeah. I was the treasurer of the anesthesia department, so I I made lots of money for anesthesia by billing it right, and we worked hard. And but when I say lots of money, it was a university-based system, so I never had lots of money. But relative terms, more than average people. For people that don't know uh, the anesthesia world, what he just described with uh, P positive end uh, expiratory pressure, it's. And some of the other fine-tuning of a ventilator is kind of like fine-tuning a, a race car. Uh, it's, it's really difficult to do because little changes make big changes. And uh, humans just are sometimes too sick to take that. So 
Somebody that can handle the respiratory end of things and anesthesia and do it well, you're keeping people alive. That's what you're doing. Well, we've done cases that probably nobody else have ever since done many times because out of what I learned, we formed a school of respiratory therapy with one instructor, two students. I did that for 10 years. At the 10th year, it became a four-year baccalaureate degree program, 100 students, 15 instructors. Uh, And, uh, you know, we made an impact. I did that in my spare time. Plus, the spare time also became the water polo coach for Syracuse University's water polo team and uh, had four kids and uh, uh, running things and but when you want to do something you can wrote a couple of books uh, and visible and all these respiratory and and critical care I'm a member of the the Peter Safart started uh, SCCM Society of Critical Care Medicine. Did, and yeah. so, so it was interesting, but what it got you is, is visibility, and suddenly you get invited to be a professor and chairman of anesthesia elsewhere. I had no intention of leaving, but suddenly I was, I was turning down places, but a couple of them I, I looked at, and at the same time happened was chairman at Cleveland Clinic and uh, Texas Tech and they ran parallel and uh, same week I was in Cleveland on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday Wednesday traveled and Thursday, Friday I was in Lubbock, Texas and I knew that I didn't want to touch Cleveland Clinic because it's such a mess <coughs> There was, even then had student nurses supervising student nurses and no academics and, um, and that changed and I had a little finger in the change because uh, I had an interview with the trustees or whatever they were called and, and I thought I'll prepare the grant for the next guy because I just didn't want to t- uh, do that <coughs> and so I said, gentlemen, you are the most dishonest group of people that I have ever met for doing what you are doing to fellow physicians. And one guy looked very hurt and looks at the other one. Is this true? He says, the other one says, yes. So you pretend to be academics. There's nothing academic. Oh, wow. And you, pre- you, you uh, don't pay people hardly anything. Uh, because I was making more money as an associate professor, and uh, you justified by saying, "But we don't, don't don't charge much." But the responsibility, liability uh, of the people is is, yeah. is enormous. So it, so you know, it changed because they are productive, they are producing. And the guys that came later, eventually, David Brown, you know, and uh, there was an Egyptian guy who was made the head of the cardiac uh, program. And when I went in, uh, so I said, the first thing you have to do is fire him. 
But the first chair, when the chairman comes in, the first thing he must do is rehire him because he does a good job. But you can't have somebody else break up the department and give a title that should be within the department. So there was organizational issues. Uh, so, but you learn from it, Texas Tech, it was Ted Hartman, who was the chairman of the search committee, and he introduced epidural steroids because he worked at Cleveland Clinic, Chicago, and he made Alan Winnie put the first um, epidural in into a patient. And then they published it in Anesthesia Analgesia as Hartman, no, sorry, Winnie Hartman, Ramamurthy, and one other guy. And that's where the steroids came from worldwide because that was the only journal in accessible to anesthesiology that was publishing worldwide because it was an international uh, journal. So, and ultimately, Alan Winnie was my friend through Joe. Uh, Dana Miller, mm -hmm. the Society, and I, I got involved. And These are all big names. Uh, sadly, so many of them are not with us, but um, yes. pioneers. Yeah, yeah. They really, they so really were. It's, it's ter terrible because they're amazing people. They're nice people. Yep. The Dana Miller Foundation, which he alludes to, uh, Alan Winnie was a... Uh, Another individual, very, very interesting life, and that's a whole story by itself. Um, but true, you know, I, I grew up uh, reading their works, your works, um, and forged away in my own career based on all these things. So you, you took the job at Texas. I took the ex exactly, and it was an impossible job to start. It was still concrete pillars, and everybody's mother, brother was a nurse anesthetist, and when you have a small place to start, uh, it's big now, but we started with nothing. But I said, I'll give you a nurse anesthetist. I said, in a small place, if I take nurses, that's going to kill it. I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. So I went in with one friend, two of us, and I took call every other day and uh, added faculty and we wrote the residency and picked the residents and be nice to the medical student. And we had the program in the 96th percentile at one point. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you, you, whenever you're in academics, you're at the mercy of the leadership. When anything is going well and other departments not going well, the only solution they see is take it from the one they're doing well so that you destroy yeah. that. Redistribution, yeah. yeah. So it's it's yeah. a little bit of what currently is redistribution of wealth, you know. And That's the way it is in the academic world. And another point I want to make about the academic world is it doesn't matter where the city is. It matters who's in that academic institution. Lubbock had you. Yeah. And it's hard for many people to understand that Lubbock is not only the birthplace of pain medicine, but it had a world-class pain center. And, I mean, world-class. You have people from all over the world coming to you. Yes, because it was not accidental, because I, I was very critical of what we were doing. I realized I was taking off in a different direction, but I realized it was the correct direction. So I visited Seattle, 
and looked at the operant conditioning because my contemporary in Liverpool was the one that took over from John Bonico while he was still alive, Terry Murphy. And from Terry Murphy came John Loser, and, mm -hmm. and then it went downhill. I mean, it's unstoppably going downhill. Um, because, you know, they, God knows what the hell they are doing. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it should not be. It, it's sad when, uh, you know, when it, everything is uh, sort of pills and do nothing and yeah. talk about it. And you knew better. And, you know, it's not just pills. It's also interventions. So... You have uh, made some landmark advances in interventions. Uh, why don't you tell us about adhesiolysis? Well, it really came from a dead patient. A it's named after you, by the way. Rack's so, procedure. Well, others named it as such, but it's it stuck. So it, it, now I, I don't sort of shiver when I have to say... I don't often say rats procedure, but neuroplasty or whatever, you know, it's, but um, it's a natural evo evolution. We had a plastic Abbott catheter migrate and kink at the same time, migrated into a vein after put the first dose in, and when the baby was out, uh, from going from a sitting position to laying down, it migrated into a vein. Because, you know, we've, we, we've understood the mechanism of the death by doing dogs and did a big open laminectomy in a dog and from the intact segment you threaded up a plastic catheter because the tip of it is so stiff, the rest is, appears to be soft, but it digs into anything to the side and um, by the time it comes in view, it comes in like a, a, a U-shape. And if the t whatever the tip hangs up on is like a vein, it can easily pop into it because nothing is being injected. You don't know it. And when you lay down, the skin slides down from the leaning forward position, and that kinks under the skin the catheter. So you do a standard of care, which is aspirate before you inject. But that doesn't protect you, because if it's kinked, yet sure. the pressure can overcome the kink. So it can inject directly into the vein. So the resident aspirated and injected, and the patient had a cardiac arrest from 0.75% bupivacaine. And 0.75% bupivacaine, unfortunately, is cardiotoxic. And we added that case to Albright's series of, I think it's like 13 cases, uh, that the FDA then withdrew 0.75 from the OB market. And uh, so at least even in death. But then I was on vacation at that time, but I came back, television, the newspapers, Everybody's talking about this death and had to figure it out. So I thought, well, we better have a catheter that doesn't kink, cannot occlude, or if it occludes, you can't inject, and has a soft tip. 
I didn't even think about lysis. I just wanted to avoid a C-section death. But then about that time, I was reading an article by Kathleen Wood from Colorado. She did, a, in pain, a, a review article on phenol. And she said that there are no reported complications from the use of epidural phenol. It just seemed impossible, so we decided to study it. And just about that time, Jim Hevner came to join me to run the research labs, and I built a fancy research lab, operating room, lab, chemistry labs, and a whole area. And um, so that was the beginning. And then we did implantation testing in rabbits so that then an IRB approval for uh, patient use and study, clinical study, and then published it, and published it in JAMA, uh, uh, Journal of American Medical Association. Yeah, what year was that? 82 or 3. Yeah, yeah. But, and then, by then, you see, things happen so quickly. I thought, well, why does it not diffuse? How does it work then? If if the phenol doesn't diffuse, then I saw it probably works at the dorsal ganglion. So from day one, my targeting has been the dorsal ganglion area back into the 80s. So it's, nothing has changed. But now we know that epidural steroids are as useless as possibly can be. So you need to go with a catheter to the dorsal ganglion and then in the neck, you flex and rotate, chin to shoulder, and then you open up the lateral runoff. And just now, there's a paper coming out in Pain Physician, 169 cases, 12 months retrospective review, and they find that the difference is not whether you had surgery before or not, but whether you see the contrast and with it, the hyaluronidase and the local steroid, and the, followed by the hypertonic saline, is going out of the spinal canal. Now, that's when you get your results. And that's when you get your long-lasting results. And we are learning now from Birkenmeyer that... Uh, can you stop for a second? Mm -hmm. Good. Good. So this paper from Korea, uh, these are spine surgeons and neurosurgeons and uh, some anesthesiologists, but large numbers of cases are being done, and they're confirming what we haven't re we knew, and they're doing it not because sort of the same raindrops dropped like dropped on us. But I visited Korea three times for four days, two years apart. So it's uh, three visits in four years, and I did 148 procedures oh in, in 10, 12 centers at each visit. These are finest centers, and the Koreans are just superb doctors. So the, you know they try to improve on and change things. And, making decisions, but uh, I think uh, the best result so far is what, 
evolved over the years. Because something doesn't work or something is dangerous, we stop it. But the hypertonic saline is now Berkemeyer, a German uh, spine surgeon group, showed that the human fibroblasts are inhibited by increasing concentration and time of hypertonic saline. And what we are showing, <coughs> what, what I'll be talking about this afternoon, is the 22-year and 30-year follow-up following. These are rare cases that I happen to notice, like the first ever published case of lysis in the techniques of neurolysis. And uh, now, yesterday, I was told that uh, the second edition, with all the new information, is in it. And not only is the second case, but all the new information how the smaller catheters can get into the scarring triangle and describing the scarring triangle. Uh, those that are interested can look it up in the second edition of Techniques of Neurolysis. And the case, clinical cases linked to these topics will be seen and visible in the paincast that is Epimed running, but it's linked to the book. So uh, the learning is going to be speeded up by those that are interested and want to watch the videos, like listening to this uh, presentation. Uh, you are speaking about that this afternoon. And, yes, uh, yes. It's going to be impossible because the topic is so long. But that's why you know I need to have a reference. So if you want to learn about it, go to Paincast and read it, or come to one of some of the cadaver sessions we are doing. Uh, and uh, those are happening all over the world. Yet, we started cadaver teaching in Lubbock. You did, yeah. I remember those. I went to one of those, yeah, um, some time ago. It's in June, right? The June yes, course. Yes, the yeah. June, June uh, yes. Well, is there I, anything you'd like to, to add about your, about your career that you'd consider a highlight? Um, I know your wife has been amazingly supportive. You have a beautiful family. And I can tell you from my end, if you don't have that, a physician cannot thrive. No, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, um, it works differently. It would definitely works differently. Yeah, but, it, you know, you, you need the family, you need your kids, you need to love them, mm -hmm. and you need lots of friends. You do. And, you know, and you, you'll, you'll end up with many friends and a handful of enemies that pick you for no good reason. But you know, professional jealousy usually. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's unavoidable. Right. And, and you know, when it happens it's sad but I don't get mad but if I can, I usually can, I get even. <laughs> so so I won't I won't put up with it much, you know. It's it's not necessary. Sure. But it, it I, I want to love everybody, but you know, if you can't I remember I, I used to be a water polo player where a lot of the activities underwater and you know, uh, I had over the years some funny funny uh, sort of people would pick on you you know oh yeah and try to kill you professionally and they they would be satisfied almost grinning they just got you but then you pop up in five different places you know, so it's it's not as simple as 
lesser people think it is. Because when you have ability to work and enjoy what you are working, you will do anything uh, to keep doing better and bigger and better things. And in my mind, I would say the relationships mattered uh, from Terry Murphy in Seattle, that was a friend of mine in 57 in Liverpool. He passed away, but I remember him, and John Loser, mm -hmm. Sam Lipton from Liverpool, he came to tell, I invited to, to criticize what I was doing, and he came and spent for three days and um, gave an old school lecture to Texas Tech, and at the end I said, okay, Sam, what do you think? He says, it's very good. Hmm. Not only that, but I'll be happy to come back and visit and help. And so he came with me for like 12 years. Yeah, lifelong friends. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> next thing was uh, people I developed, like Miles Day, beautiful person. He is. He's really good, really yeah, smart. Yeah, a total delight and able. Uh, the only one I trusted to work on my wife, Yeah. other than myself. Yeah, he's, he's quite a guy. So, and then, uh, and let's not forget the greatest of them all, uh, Prithvi Raj, who came and spent, I don't know, eight, nine years with me. And when, when people heard he's coming to be with me, he said, you guys are going to kill each other. <coughs> and you know what happened? <coughs> Nothing. Because I respected him, he respected me, we haven't had one single argument. And uh, he wrote the nicest note a few days before he went to heaven. And, and uh, you know, having gone to his funeral in Cincinnati, having seen uh, Susan and Maya and Mark, uh, it's sort of special. You know, so you have links in life that you have to keep up with. And Achievements, hell, I've been treated nicely, uh, got so many friendly awards, but you cannot leave out <coughs> the, the fact that we started the FIPP exams, started cadaver teaching, started the whole educational process, and... <coughs> and Go ahead. And it was obvious to me that we should do something because our standard societies were not doing what the ink and what pain physicians needed, and we are increasing the the mass of pain doctors. Like we have trained like 160 fellows or something, and the many visitors from worldwide that came and spent a week, two weeks, a month. One Chinese professor spent six months with me. And uh, so it was obvious that somebody had to organize it. And I could not do it from the university side. I was obvious. It, it's so complicated. And then I saw in 98 or thereabout uh, Lex Menchikanti doing 
<laughs> yeah. the interventional pain group. So I, I recognized that was needed. It wasn't quite what it is now today, but I recognized it's badly needed, I, my, and my God, it was correct. Uh, so I came as the first one, really, from academics to come and do anything that lacks needed. And so we all grew from it. And I became, a, elect, first of all, appointed board member, then elected board member. And the, the funniest thing was when Lex, having received the results, and then he said, here's his usual sort of ha, 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 ha. <laughs> little giggle, you know, he says, and she, he says, you got the largest number of votes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so that was for a while. But, but it's, the experience of working with Lex has been phenomenal. He knows the people he works with. He knows the people, the skills they have. And let me tell you, the people that work with him deliver. They're the true mailman. You know, just deliver. Yeah. Well, and, he's and published what a, 11 books and 450 publications. It's, uh, it's remarkable. And, and uh, the lesser people that criti- criticize him, they don't know how hard he works. It's possible for somebody like Lax. I couldn't do it. You know, I not not the numbers. Right. Uh, but we are all different. Uh, I I tend to be more working with people and and designate and and share the responsibility. And for example, towards the end of my 23 years as chairman. I didn't particularly want to be a chairman, but then I thought I'd keep another SOB by <laughs> by keeping the job from the position. And I'm not going to say anything about people that followed, but I know that the job was barely doable uh, because of the administrative changes that are inatav- in- inevitably uh, uh, happened by people who are not in the specialty, they're looking at it from a macrocosm, not a microcosm. The department needs to be looked at because everything we do is for the betterment, but it is not quite as good as uh, by expenditure by the dean and the system as they want to. They don't want anybody to be really outstanding while the others are dying for. <laughs> But the dying is because of the talent of the people that are in the jobs, not because one is greedier and takes more money. You know, but but it's an interesting process that we have to live through. And I have nothing but the greatest respect for the people that do, do jobs like dean and president and chancellor and and the various boards. Because, but sometimes nobody is correct. You know, we're all at odds with each other and and your job as if you get to be a leader is to represent everybody's interests the faculty the, the organization the system the institution well in medicine we we are forced to use whatever skills we have and the academics and um it, it is a, a process that I have no regrets. 
absolutely about the uh, many nights. Uh, maybe I could have made more money for the department by billing for things I just did because it needed to be done, you know. And uh, it's not the, the survival private practice mentality, but I think when you have skills, they will be needed. Our patients need us, and our students and fellow physicians need us. And you can only say uh, thank you for your years of dedication because you have not helped a few people. You've helped tens of thousands. You've trained, uh, you've trained young physicians in, in the world uh, uh, of interest, and we're all better for it. And I thank you very much. Thank you, Hans, my dear friend. That was an incredible interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Rax, and thank you so much to Dr. Raj, everything you've, you've done and left with us. A timeless story of dedication, struggles, and success. Okay, well, you know, sorry about the auto, audio. You have, to, you have to think of where you're at. You have some time with Dr. Rax, and you take it whenever and wherever. So we've got a second part, and it'll be released soon. Yes, there's more. So stay tuned.